Hi, welcome to the WellDoc Podcast. We're medical students bringing you honest conversations with practicing physicians surrounding wellness and medicine. Thank you for joining us on this journey as we look to those in the field for direction and advice in achieving balance and wellness in our present and future lives. For this episode, we're being joined by Dr. James Feeney, Director of Trauma Services at Mid-Hudson Regional Hospital. Dr. Feeney grew up in a working-class family and joined the military before college. After medical school, Dr. Feeney returned to military service as a physician before becoming involved in medical education and going on to earn a Master's of Education. Join us as we learn more about his military and surgical experiences and, very importantly, his bagpiping successes. As a side note, you might hear some background voices. They're from the vaccine clinic at Mid-Hudson. But hey, at least that means we're making moves towards fighting COVID. Thank you for joining me today. Our first question for you is, what are three good things that happened to you this week? Oh, geez, three good things that happened to me this week. I, I guess I'm trying to pick the best ones. You know, we had a lot of time off. The kids had a lot of time off from school, and my daughter is home from college, and all the other kids are home from school and I had a little bit of time off around the holidays and, and after the holidays. So that was nice to be, you know, kind of all together. I'm a musician too. And I, I like to, every once in a while, I like to take a lesson myself from, you know, people who are, have been doing this longer than I have and are better than I am. And I, I had a really productive one of those. And uh, I guess the third one would be, I had a uh, old friend who was having trouble with her bagpipe who was able to come by and we had a, an in-person visit and um you know she came up to have me you know fix something up for her and once it was fixed it was not just good it was brilliant it was so good so um those were three of the best things that happened if you want to count little things like you know the snowblower started up right away this morning and small victories, right? Celebrate the small things. So our next question is a little more serious. We want to know what wellness means to you because a lot of people have different definitions. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the important thing is that this job that I've been doing now for more than a decade, it's going to be 15 this year, um, this job will consume you if you let it. I, I think wellness means not letting it and making sure that you keep time in your life for those things like I was mentioning. If you're a musician, play your music. If you're an artist, you know, apply your trade. If you have a family, spend time with your family. Because I think if you don't do those things, then, you know, mentally and emotionally, you can get really ravaged by what happens with this job. It's very easy to allow that to happen. And so making sure that you keep that balance, I think, is wellness in a nutshell. So how do you keep that balance? Because it can be kind of hard to, you know, make time for everything. Yeah, you're right. It is. It's really hard. And sometimes you can't. I mean, the COVID surge is one good example of how, you know, you're just going to have to buck up and take the extra calls and take the extra shifts and do what needs to be done. And, you know, you do that with a promise that when it's all over, you'll, you know, reward yourself somehow with some of the things that you actually like to do you know, some time to kind of recenter yourself. I, I think that's really the key is that you can't always, when you can, you, you have to take the opportunity to do that, right? When you can, you have to say, you know, no, I'm not going to work that extra shift. No, sorry, I can't do 
15 calls a month. There's some, just sometimes that you have to say no, and sometimes you won't say no and you'll say yes. You have to be able to allow for that to happen. You have to be flexible, but you also have to understand that your own mental health and emotional well-being are just as important because without that, you can't really be at your best. So how, how do you learn you know, what you want to say no to or decide what you want to spend your time on? Right. So your question is a really good one because we're taught that you know, because we can, we must. And I think that's really true. Because we have the ability to take care of sick people and to understand the disease processes and the pathophysiology, then we have to. And saying no is not something we're taught. In fact, what we're taught is to say yes. What we're taught is your patients need you, and so therefore you will, to the exclusion of everybody else. And so it's it's hard to go backwards in the other direction. And you certainly, you'll meet some people in your career who are really good at seeing no to the point where they can never be relied on for anything. And you, you kind of don't like working with those folks. But I, I think probably, you know, learning to say no is a skill. It's a skill we're not taught. It's a skill that we have to really uh, work on ourselves and, you know, watch other people as they model those skills and then figure out how you do it based on who you are, right? Your, your no is going to sound different than my no. It's going to be hard to do that. Nobody ever said it was easy. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not too. And I, I think, you know, as a man and as a majority white man, it's going to be really different for me saying, no, sorry, I can't do that and have that be the end of it than almost anybody else. I, I completely appreciate that. I understand it. But, you know, again, okay. it's you'll, you'll watch others around you do it and you'll watch them model the behavior and, you know, see what their results are like and you'll, you'll figure out ways you like to do it and ways you don't like to do it. Um, so going back to this idea of balance, how has that looked different throughout your career? When I was at the beginning of my career, I took as much call as they would give me, and I saw all the patients and did all the operations, and I would stay late to operate, and then I would I would be very involved in the patients. Like I, if my partners were rounding that day, I would say, no, no, no I'll see my patient, and I, I I tried to do all of that stuff as much as I could. And then I came to understand that, you know, being part of a team means that sometimes you got to let somebody else, which sounds silly, right? That took me a few years to figure out for myself. And then in my second job, I had a partner in particular and maybe two who were perfectly happy to let anybody else do whatever. And they were perfectly happy to sit in their office with the door closed until it was time to leave at night and then go. And that kind of got under my skin a little bit. And I figured there's got to be some kind of a balance. And then I think I finally got it a little bit more directly. I mean, it centers really around communication. And so now I, I'm in a place where I can say, you know, I, I think your expectations are uh, unreasonable and here's why. And I can, I can communicate that with people above me on the chain of command. And I can look at people who are, you know, subordinate on that chain of command and say, you know, don't let, if, if you give us this ability to schedule you 15 times a month, we'll take it. So don't, don't let that happen. Yeah. I guess one of the things that I think a lot of students struggle with is that we don't feel like we're in a position where we can try to create that balance for us. We just have to listen to what everybody tells us to do. Yeah, that's the expectation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and that's you know part of the indoctrination. It, it, and it comes from my ilk, right? It comes from the attendings at the top of the food chain who will give you the old, well, when I was the medical student, you got here an hour before the intern and you left an hour after. But that's not it's not sustainable anymore, right? It's not reasonable. And the, the skills that you need to master Right? include things like taking sign out from 
the person who was on last night and giving sign out to the person who's coming on. And one of those skills is to avoid the very common, just call me if you have any questions. And, you know, the patient goes into atrial fibrillation and I want to use, you know, uh, I want to use amiodarone and somebody else wants to use cardiazem. Well, if I'm not on and they use cardiazem, you got to let that go, right? You can't say, but I wanted amiodarone and I left instructions and blah, blah, blah. You know, you, you can't. You, you got to say, oh, okay, well, you know, I mean, you were at the bedside, you did it your way, you had your reasons. And, uh, you know, thanks for doing that. And, you know, that goes the other way as well. When you're the person on call and that operating surgeon says, if he goes into atrial fibrillation, give him cardiazone, you don't get to go, well, I like amiodarone better. Even though they'll do it to you, you've got to model the behavior. You know, you've got to be the change you want to see in the world, right? I prefer amiodarone, but I gave him cardiazone and now he's on the drip. And, you know, you can have the conversation. You've just got to, you got to be a good partner. You got to be a team player, which is different than, you know, being the one person throughout that, that patient's you know, month-long hospital stay or however long it's going to end up being. You've got to be uh, allow the team to participate in the way they can. Okay. I'm going to hit the low-hanging fruit first. So you've mentioned, you know, this idea of changes in culture in medicine. Surgery is very well known to have a toxic culture, or at least that is the stereotype for it. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you think that's true? And how do you think that's changed? I, I think it is true. I think it's 100% true. I think the toxicity comes from a good place, if you can imagine such a crazy thing. Interesting. The good place is a deep-seated desire to take good care of patients. And another part of that is holding people accountable, very accountable, for their decisions and their performance and their actions. All those are good things, but it's gone too far. It's gone to the point of, like I say, if there are three different ways to do it, you're going to do it my way or you're, you know, stupid and piece of garbage and I hate you and you're wrong and why didn't you call me? So it's gone, it's gone too far. And that really starts with good communication and with, you know, giving people the space and the ability to kind of stretch their legs a little bit to say, okay, you know, something that wasn't covered in my sign out occurred and I'm going to take care of it instead of I'm too afraid to take care of it because uh, somebody's going to yell at me tomorrow. Got to just stop the yelling, right? We're all on the same side, right? There's the realization. We're all on the same side. We're all trying to do the right thing for the, for the patient. We're all in this together. And so, you know, stop with the blame finding and the finger pointing and just get on board with how do we get, how do we make it better? You know, did I miss something in my sign out? Uh, did I miss something that should have made me think that this was going to happen? Whatever. Communicate and don't think of people as bad humans because something bad happened. You're all good humans and you're here for the right reasons and you want to do the right things and bad stuff is going to happen and patients are going to die. Patients are going to have complications. We're going to try to make that happen as little as possible. But it's a learning process, right, for all of us, myself included. And the sooner we get that into our heads, you know, and be a little, just a little bit lenient about, you know, the learning process itself, the easier it's going to be for everybody. Right. So there's kind of this trickle-down effect in surgery, at least that's what it seems like, where, you know, the attendings treat residents a certain way, residents then start treating med students a certain way. And I think a lot of students have seen residents start to emulate the actions of the people above them and even students will emulate the actions of the residents. And you can't really force anybody into acting a certain way or communicating a certain way. So what do you think needs to happen for that culture to change? 
I mean, it start, it's going to start with one person who makes the realization that, because right, these are, these are all skills that you're learning. These are communication skills that we are supposedly teaching, right? And the way we teach them is called non-formal education. We teach them by modeling. So I model a particular way of dealing with conflict, and my residents see that that's how you deal with conflict. And then they deal with conflict that way with their junior residents and with their medical students. And when the medical students become residents, they say, well, how did my residents that, I, that, took, that taught me deal with it? Well, this is how they dealt with it. How are my peers doing it? Well, this is how they're doing it. And that's how this propagates, right, going forward, is that, that sort of non-formal education. Well, we don't have to do that. We can do it in a formal way. We can do it in a semi-formal way. We can do it in an informal way, all of which are different than the non-formal way. So we can informally say, let's talk about that interaction that you and I just had. You know, that didn't go as well as I wanted. And here's what I was intending. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I came across as a jerk. I, why is that hard? Does that have to be hard? It doesn't have to be hard. It, it just takes the realization that that surgical culture is never going to change unless you change it or I change it or a group of us together get together and say, I see what's happening here, right? The realization. I see what's happening here. I don't want that to happen. What am I going to do to change it, right? And if one person does that, then all of a sudden, because this is non-formal education, right? All the other people on the service start seeing, well, look, somebody else does it a different way. Uh, maybe I could do it a different way too, right? Even, even us old attendings who are old dogs learn new tricks that way. Mm -hmm. I guess it just doesn't seem like one person will be making that big of a difference in such a large culture and such an old culture of just handling things in a more toxic manner. No, you're right. You're right. It's, it's a complete, it's completely an uphill battle. And then what's going to happen is pretty soon we're going to get a critical mass, right? And, and it's just going to, it's going to change very rapidly. I mean, part of what happened is medical staffs put abusive physician statutes on their medical staff bylaws. To say you, you can't do this to the nursing staff, you can't do this to the PAs anymore. You can't treat the respiratory therapists like this, right? You you just you can't, right? And so now the penalty for doing it is you could lose your job. And so you know people grumble about it. Well, back in my day, you know, it was a gift if you got yelled at because that meant that they weren't, you know, nobody was going to write you up or take you to HR or whatever. Okay, I mean, fair enough. You know, you could just say, I'm going to write that physical therapist up who didn't do what I asked or who let the patient fall or who blah, 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 whatever. You could say that. Or you could also go have a polite and pleasant conversation with the person and say, you know, I was a little worried about this and, and here's something I wanted to talk to you about. You know, that works too. Sometimes people take even those conversations personally and they turn into, well, I didn't like the way she talked to me or I didn't like the way he talked to me. That's all part of the process because then you get to say to yourself, well, I mean, what exactly did I say and how could I have said it better? You know, that's all part of that personal feedback process. A lot harder for some people than it looks, I think. You're right, because we have to be right. It's very hard to get called out in front of patients. And, and there's a fair reason for that, right? Because imagine for a second, you're in the operating room and the circulating nurse or the scrub nurse says, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do it this way? And you say, no, I'm going to do it my way. You know, get out of here. What the hell's wrong with you, right? And all, all of a sudden, you're the abusive physician. Now, the opposite of that would be to say, oh, okay, I'll try it your way, right? Something goes wrong. The case goes to M&M. You get sued. Where's that person with the big idea? They're gone. Now, you know that. As, you, as the person who's 
name is on the dotted line, you know that's what's going to happen. And so that's why you go, no, we're going to do it my way. Mm-hmm. Good example of this was a patient who you know needed an ED thoracotomy. It wasn't here. It was at uh, it was in the Wisconsin hospital. And I said to the staff in the ED, I said, get the ED thoracotomy tray. Well, we don't do those here. Okay, we're going to do it on this one. Get the ED thoracotomy tray. Well, Dr. Weigelt doesn't do it that way. Okay, when he's on call, do it his way. Today's my day. Do it my way. And, you know, the backlash I got for that was you know, pretty profound. Now, I still to this day maintain that in that particular situation, we didn't have a lot of time to discuss that in a collegial manner. Was there a different way I could have handled it? Probably. Probably was. I probably could have said, just show me where they're kept. I'll take care of it myself. Um, or, or something along those lines. There have been a lot of times, there have been a lot of times where I've had people, you know, disagree with a clinical decision and I, I dig my heels in and say, but, this, but we're going to do it this way. You know, that being said, you know, again, these are skills. The way dealing with those situations are skills that we all need to learn. And so instead of hiding those difficult interactions, right, we can talk about them. We can learn about how, you know, we can talk about what the skills are we're going to use when those situations occur, right? A little too often that, that talking about the skills comes into, oh, this is how I kick butt and took initials because I didn't want to Stephen stop long enough to take names. It's got to take on a different aura. It's got to be here's what went on and your real success is in getting that person who is opposed to the decision you're trying to make to come over to your side and to get that to happen quickly. Like That's got to be the goal, not, look how I gave a very Hollywood, very uh, a very you know, TV show kind of smart aleck back talk to the person and put them in their place. It, it can't be that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think it's unfortunate that I think the view that people have of surgery and the view that people get of surgery drives away the type of people who would make the change in surgery that we want to see. I completely agree that that is a big problem. And I think, you know, people who come into surgery and become part of the problem, there's going to come a point in their careers and their lives where they say, geez, I just, you know, I don't need this in my life anymore. You know, I don't need this kind of conflict in my life anymore. I, I want it to be easier. I want it to be more collegial. And I don't want everything to be a fight. I want people to be on my side. Uh, how can I get that to happen? And when that happens, then people start asking about how do I learn these skills that I needed to learn? Mm-hmm. We can start learning them in medical school too. We don't have to learn them in residency. We don't have to learn them as attendings. I, in residency, in my, in my program, it was, you know, you have to kick butt for the patient, right? That's, that's, that's so last century. You can't do that anymore. It's, it's got to be different now. It's got to be, how am I going to get this person on my side? Okay, so as a medical student, then, how would you go about building those skills, putting yourself in situations where you are able to get get the people on your side? I mean, yeah, because in my opinion, students just feel like we kind of have to go along with what everybody's doing. Um, You can't really speak up as much. So how do you try to like change the way that other people are acting around you? Yeah, that that is such a great question. Uh, There's so much in there to unpack, right? The first piece of this is um, a six foot tall white male. It's The answer is going to be a completely different answer than for a less than six foot tall Asian woman. And, and so, you know, the, the way I've had to learn it, non-formally and informally, it, it's probably easier for me. It's definitely easier for me. Um, and so I've had that a little bit, I've had a little bit of, a, of an advantage, right? I get a lot more leeway. I get a lot more of a command of the room when I walk in, people are like, that guy's in charge. 
because he's the taller white guy. But Dr. Tiagi is a great example of someone who has, you know, mastered the ability to say, this is what I need, and people give it to her, right? And she's very, if you look at her communication style, she's very direct about it, and that works for her. She's very direct about sending emails to the right people, and that works for her. Now, for me to do that, it's like, why did you throw me under the bus? Why didn't you just come to me? Mm -hmm. So, and maybe she gets that as well, but, you know, she's a great example of, you know, she's figured it out for herself. I, I think there are a couple of universals, though. The first one is it starts with clear, professional, polite communication with a phone call, with a face-to-face, voice-to-voice, not an email, not a text message, not a tiger text. It starts with an attempt to have a one-on-one communication that would be, you know, that, that you can then build on. And probably the best thing that medical students can do is to call attention to these things when you see them. And even just ask questions like, so what were you thinking when that was going down? And like, were you worried about how this was going to play out, you know, for like future interactions with the person or not? And sometimes those leading questions can get people to really evaluate their own performance. Like, what what would you have done differently or better with that particular interaction? Because I'm just trying to learn so that I have a way that I can do this, you know, when I'm the attending or when I'm the resident right and that that's a neat way to turn it around on people you know they take it well Uh, maybe they won't but if you put it that way to them like i'm trying to learn from you like tell me what you were thinking about like did that go the way you wanted you know how would you have gotten it to go differently do you think how is it how would that work for me kind of thing you know it's an interesting way to spin it i think hard to do in the moment yeah because if you think about it, I mean, think about what we look for in medical schools, right? We look for people who have, you know, biology degrees and a, and a paper in nature, right? And, and and the highest grades and the best test scores. But what about the people who have the outstanding communication skills and the leadership and the abil- and the team building ability that doesn't get taught in college? Where does that come into selection for medical school? How would you put it into selection for medical school? An excellent question. It would be so easy. Tell me more. So the first thing is we put way too much focus on numbers, way too much focus on the measurement. There comes a point where your grades are high enough so that you're going to be able to pass. Your test scores are high enough so that you're going to make it, right? After that, now you have to start looking at other things like life experiences. You have to start looking at how people spend their free time. What do they do for enjoyment, right? So you you have people who are a a pro tennis player. Is that a different set of skills than somebody who, you know, was an NFL or an NHL hockey player? Probably. It probably is, right? Because the NHL hockey players have to know a little bit more about how to get their team members. They have to watch, you know, a lot more stuff going on. It's not just a single physical skill that you yourself can control, right? Um, I, I have a particular affinity for musicians because I think musicians have this drive, right, to continuously improve, which is over and above any measurement. It was better because it was emotionally better. It was better because I was feeling it. How do I get that again, right? Um, certainly for artists too, you, there's, there's a drive for a perfection that they can never attain. And that drive in and of itself has, has value, right? Um, uh, again, people who have demonstrated an ability to work with others or to be a team leader, right? A positive ability to do that. Those are valuable skills that we don't even think about. Right. I mean, I think schools are trying to incorporate more of that into their decisions. Um, There's also the problem of weeding out people who, you know, now that people know that that's something that schools look at, um, you have to, I think, weed out some people who maybe are involved in certain activities just for just to say they were. 
that'll be a little harder. But um, there, there comes a point where it gets to be obvious when you get the real superstar, you know, like like the person who you know um, spent two years working in an orphanage in Romania. It, you know, you, you're not faking that to get into medical school. The person who spent three years in the Peace Corps, you know, working in Sub-Saharan Africa, you, you're not you're not faking that to get into medical school. This is this is a calling, you know. Uh, so somebody who's been doing these kinds of activities in their community all their lives. This isn't. Well, I better do the. You know, that's a one or two semester or one or two year thing that I can. You know, I can do it in my off time while I'm in college, and I'll it'll it'll work out. That's it for this episode of the Well Doc Podcast. We actually enjoyed this full interview so much that we decided to include more of it and split it into a two-part episode. So look out for part two to hear the rest. Thank you again to Matthias Palmer for the audio editing expertise. See you in part two.